President Biden and China's President Xi Jinping meet in California to break the rising tension between the two sides. Talks focused on fentanyl flowing from China to the U.S. and the safe use of artificial intelligence. China's leader says planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed. It's Wednesday, November 15th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. At an Illinois prison rife with abuse, even officials face threats for trying to change the culture. And scientists are learning more about planets and other solar systems, including one planet that's about the size of Neptune. But it's much less dense, so it has a very large radius, which gives it a density not quite as low as cotton candy, but going in that direction. And it's made of sand. These stories, Wall Street numbers, and the forecast are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Israeli forces have raided Gaza's largest hospital, saying that Hamas is operating in the territory's hospitals or tunnels under them. However, human rights advocates say that even if true, it does not give Israel free reign to endanger civilians who are also there. More than 650 U.S. officials have signed a letter calling on President Biden to support an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. NPR's Asma Khalid reports this letter is a sign of internal dissent over the president's Israel policy. The letter was signed anonymously by political appointees and civil servants across some 40 different government agencies. That's according to a person familiar with the drafting of the letter who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of fear of repercussions. The letter begins by condemning the October 7th Hamas attacks and goes on to urge Biden to de-escalate and call for a ceasefire. Separately, a high-profile list of more than 100 former Biden and Obama administration officials issued a public letter praising the president for his, quote, staunch support of Israel. This comes as the Democratic Party appears divided. The latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll found 56 percent of Democrats think the Israeli military's response has been too much. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The Israel-Hamas conflict was among a series of security issues expected to be addressed during in-person talks between President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping this afternoon. Biden and Xi are in California to attend the Asia-Pacific Summit in San Francisco. The U.S. Senate could vote as soon as today on a short-term funding bill three days before the deadline to avoid a shutdown. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports House overwhelmingly approved the measure Tuesday. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer criticized the House GOP's short-term spending proposal that set two different deadlines to approve full-year spending bills for early next year. But he says he will vote for it because it does two important things. It will avoid a government shutdown and it will do so without any of the cruel cuts or poison pills that the hard right pushed for. The Senate is expected to pass the bill before federal funding expires on Friday. Bipartisan negotiators are working on a national security funding package for Congress to consider next month. That bill is also expected to include border security provisions. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. It appears New Hampshire will hold the first in the nation primary. After all, the state's top official has set the date for it, January 23rd. The Democratic National Committee wanted South Carolina to go first, arguing that black voters and other voters of color need to have a greater say in the early nominating process. President Biden's 2020 campaign was rescued in large part by black voters in the state. South Carolina's Democratic primary is currently planned for February 3rd. 
The Dow has closed up 163 points. You're listening to NPR News. Good afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston City Councilors have unanimously passed an ordinance that will require the Boston Police Department to monitor gun trafficking. WBUR's Arena Machavariani has more. The plan calls on police to compile an annual report on the flow of illegal firearms into Boston. Police also must track how traffickers transport guns and disclose offenders' ages when available. City Councilor Brian Worrell says the measure will bring evidence-based changes to gun control policies in Boston. These reports will provide the data we need to best craft policies that will make a real impact. We will find out exactly how these guns are getting into our neighborhoods and how these cycles of violence begin. The ordinance notes that the majority of firearms recovered at Boston crime scenes come from 18 other states. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Elina Majavadiani. Brookline housing advocates are celebrating the passage last night of a rezoning plan that will add hundreds of units to the town's commercial districts. The zoning changes will let Brookline comply with a new state law that requires multifamily zoning near public transit. Critics of the measure have said it will not help the Harvard Street Business District, but organizer Katha Seidman says the group of the group Yes in Brookline says the town has to adapt to the current housing market. A town's character is made up of both its buildings and its streetscapes, but it's also made up of its people. And Brookline has to allow itself to grow and change so that it can accommodate the new people. The plan could lead to the development of up to 800 units along Harvard Street. A strike by more than 12,000 janitors in Massachusetts and Rhode Island appears to have been averted. The Service Employees International Local 32 says it's reached a tentative agreement with the region's largest cleaning contractors. The union says the pact includes a 20 percent wage increase over four years. In addition, about 500 part-time jobs in Cambridge and Boston will be converted into full-time positions over the life of the contract. A vote on the tentative deal is set to begin Saturday. In the forecast, first part of the night tonight should be overcast, but then a sunny day tomorrow all the way up to about 60 degrees. Partly sunny on Friday, windy but warmer, temperatures in the mid-60s. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. All month, we've been hearing about the record contracts the United Auto Workers won after a six-week strike. But for thousands of workers, the 25% raises and other gains are proving not good enough. UAW members are now voting for or against the tentative deal. And for more on all of that, we turn now to NPR's Andrea Hsu. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so tell us more about what's going on. Some workers are voting the contract down? Well, the numbers are constantly changing as workers go to their union halls to vote. It's happening plant by plant. But we do now do, do now have tallies for most of the GM and Ford facilities. 
And at Ford, about two thirds of voters have actually voted yes. And at GM, the yes votes are also ahead, but it's a lot closer. So this morning we got results from three of GM's big truck and SUV plants in Missouri, Indiana, and Texas. Each of them has thousands of workers. And at two of them in Missouri and Indiana, a majority voted no on the deal. Hmm. But in Texas, 60% voted yes. So a lot of mixed opinions out there. Mixed opinions. I I guess I'm kind of surprised because I mean, I feel like we've heard everyone, even President Biden, call these contracts historic, right? Yeah, President Biden spoke to UAW workers last week, and it was kind of a party atmosphere. Um, Here's how he congratulated Union President Sean Fain. Sean, you've done one hell of a job, pal. And Biden said these contracts set a new standard. And when you look at what Sean Fain achieved, it is impressive. The raises, 25 percent for most workers, but a whole lot more for lower wage earners, are more than auto workers have seen in the past 22 years combined. Hmm. And the union also got cost of living allowances restored, so wages will rise along with inflation. They got all three companies to increase their 401k retirement contributions to 10%. And Elsa, these are all gains that I think most workers in America would be overjoyed about. Absolutely. So why is there so much dissatisfaction, at least at General Motors? Well, a lot of workers, including those who voted yes, will point out that these wins still don't make up for what auto workers lost in 2007 when the country was on the verge of the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, starting wages were cut in half, new hires stopped getting pensions and retiree health care. And Sean Fain went into these talks saying, we're fighting to get these things back. And also, we want a 40% raise and a 32-hour work week. And, you know, while some workers have told me they understood from the beginning, that this was a bargaining tactic. You know, you shoot for the moon because you're going to end up with less. Right. Others thought this was possible. Some of this was possible. And moreover, they feel they deserve these benefits, especially health care and retirement, given how hard they work and how profitable the big three have been. So are workers feeling like Sean Fain let them down? Well, to some extent, but let's be clear, he still has lots of fans. But some people have told me they don't trust Fain. Uh, I think a lot of that stems from the troubled history of the union. You know, it was only a couple years ago that more than a dozen UAW officials were convicted on corruption charges. Two past UAW presidents spent time in prison. And even though Sean Fain came in as a reformer, you know, and a rabble rouser, someone who actually led a campaign to reject that 2007 contract that was so bad for workers, he's now already seen by some as the establishment, despite everything he's done to try to convince the rank and file that he's with them. And this is the best contract he thinks he can get them. Okay. well, as we said, the votes are ongoing. When do you think we can expect final results? Well, possibly by the end of this week. There's still lots of voting going on at Stellantis. Yes, votes are ahead there as well. And then we'll see if any of the contracts are rejected by the members. Their negotiators go back to the bargaining table, but there's no guarantee what they would emerge with. That is NPR's Andrea Hsu. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thanks, Elsa. In Iceland, experts say a volcanic eruption could come any day now. Hundreds of earthquakes have pushed magma upward. The country has declared a state of emergency and evacuated thousands of people from the peninsula where the earth is shaking. Edward Marshall is a geochemist at the University of Iceland. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Harry. I'm glad to be here. At this point, is a volcanic eruption a sure thing or how likely is it? It's certainly not a sure thing, although initially the signs were telling us that the eruption was advancing quite rapidly. Since then, signs that eruption is going to occur have been declining over time. 
And yet, the country has declared a state of emergency. Thousands of people have been evacuated. The risk still seems real. It's very real, and it's still high. But it's also true that the most likely times for an eruption to occur have already passed. There were times when some were claiming that an eruption would happen in hours, and now claims are more on the order of days to weeks. Um, now, the thing is, is that sometimes the, the signals that precede an eruption can go away for a little bit shortly before an eruption. So it's not necessarily the case that silence is good, but it's also true that as time goes on and no eruption has happened, it becomes less likely that an eruption will occur in the future. Okay, so on the one hand, if everybody's lucky, there will be no eruption, but there's also a possibility of a massive eruption. I mean, in 2010, a volcano in Iceland erupted, and not only did it have local effects, it disrupted global air travel. So how do you prepare for that wide a range of scenarios? So this is where our scientific study of the region comes into play. We have done a massive amount of study of the area of the types of eruptions that occur. And what we can say is we can almost rule out an Ayafiatla yokel style of very large eruption. Because Ayafiatla yokel which is this large eruption that occurred in 2010, uh, erupted a very different type of lava than what we expect beneath the Reykjanes Peninsula. So in real world terms, if this volcano does erupt, what's it going to look like? What it will look like is we'll have a fissure open up. The fissure will be uh, hundreds of meters to kilometers long. The fissure will, will produce lava. And over the first hours to days, the fissure will collapse into lava coming out of a single vent. And depending upon the amount of lava coming out initially in the beginning of the eruption, the eruption could last weeks or months, which is the amount of time that eruptions have lasted previously on the Reykjanes Peninsula. And currently, we don't have any reason to believe that this eruption should be much different. I've got to ask for you, as somebody who spent your life researching this, is there a tension between the excitement of watching something like this unfold in real time and the anxiety about the destruction that it could cause if it happens? This is a great question. So in 2021, we had the eruption of Fagadalsfjall, which erupted in a part of the Reykjanes Peninsula that was completely uninhabited. So we were able to kind of have our cake and eat it too as mm. geologists because we had this fantastic eruption and nobody was getting hurt. But the thing is, is that an eruption near Grindavik could truly be a disaster. It could destroy the power plant that supports heat and electricity for the nearby residents. And it could, of course, destroy the town of Grindavik. Uh, Icelanders are no newcomers to disaster. And in the past, they have done extremely heroic actions to stop lava from destroying their cities and harbors. But we don't know what will happen in this coming eruption if it happens. So... You know, although I'm very excited about eruptions, I'm definitely hoping that there isn't going to be one. Edward Marshall is a geochemist with the University of Iceland. Thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, thank you, Ari. NPR Tiny Desk Contest winner Quinn Christofferson, drag artist Patty Gonia, and superstar cellist Yo-Yo Ma have joined forces to create a new song for the climate change movement. Never giving up on you, never giving up on you. 
NPR's Chloe Veltman says the trio aims to counteract feelings of despair when it comes to reducing global warming. The song Won't Give Up was originally conceived as a requiem, an act of remembrance for a melting glacier in Alaska. We were standing, all three of us, on Exit Glacier in a spot where even five, ten years ago, the glacier was 100 feet tall, and now it's nothing. Now it's the rocks underneath. That's drag artist Patagonia. She and her collaborators, Quinn Christofferson and Yo-Yo Ma, travel to the site in Kenai Fjords National Park to shoot the accompanying music video. In the video, the trio performs the song against a rugged backdrop of craggy rocks, dark waters and scattered shards of ice. Yo-Yo Ma's haunting cello solo personifies the weeping glacier. Melting glaciers, rising sea levels and extreme weather are just some of the impacts of human-caused climate change. Yet, despite these realities, the musicians decided to give their song a hopeful message. Quinn Christofferson, an indigenous Alaskan, says that's what the climate change movement needs right now. We're not going to give up on nature, we're not going to give up on each other. Around 100 people at a recent music workshop held in Fairbanks joined the artists for a sing-along. Princess Dajre Johnson is a board member of Native Movement, an indigenous-led advocacy group in Alaska. She helped organize the workshop. We have to be able to express these big emotions so we can continue to take action and not fall into this pit of despair. The musicians say they hope Won't Give Up will become an anthem for the climate change movement. They'd like to see it have as big an impact as We Shall Overcome, the song that helped to define the civil rights movement. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to All Things Considered here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, how China's weakened economy may affect talks between President Biden and China's President Xi. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series of Boston, presenting pianist Jeremy Denk on December 8th at NEC's Jordan Hall. Tickets and more information at celebrityseries.org. And Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. It was another up day for stocks today. The Dow rose nearly half percent. S&P grew by less than two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained less than one-tenth of a percent. The Justice Department is settling for nearly a million dollars with a staffing agency that does business in Boston. The settlement resolves allegations that K-Force used ads and hiring processes that discriminated against applicants based on their citizenship status. Nearly one-third of the payment will go toward affected workers. A K-Force spokesperson says the company does not comment on legal matters. The forecast is coming up.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar, with modern American cuisine and signature dishes like crab-crusted haddock and superfood salad. Eight locations in greater Boston, burtonsgrill.com. And Fresh City Kitchen, with a goal of delivering holiday catering everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com. 48 degrees in Boston. Clouds lead us into the evening and then clearing skies by dawn. Breezy and chilly tomorrow. About 40 overnight tonight. Tomorrow could reach 60 degrees, possibly the mid-60s on Friday. This is WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Special Management Unit at the U.S. Penitentiary at Thompson, Illinois, was one of the most violent prisons in the country. NPR and the Marshall Project first exposed the abuse of prisoners there last year. And in February, officials at the U.S. Bureau of Prisons concluded that the unit couldn't be fixed and shut it down. Now, prison officials are telling our reporters that things were as bad as we reported and worse. When they tried to make change, they even faced a death plot from some of their own staff. Here's NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro. Egregious inmate abuse, the worst he'd ever seen in his 31 years in corrections. That's how Warden Thomas Bergami described what he found at Thompson. He was sent there in March of 2022 to fix things. But he says often corrections officers resisted his directives to quit abusing prisoners. He ordered them to stop putting prisoners in handcuffs and restraints for hours and days, so tight and for so long that men were left with permanent scars, what they called their Thompson tattoos. Bergami told us of white guards using racial slurs and writing up false charges against black prisoners, that when he tried to hold staff accountable, he says the staff union went to war, falsifying and hyping problems at the prison and complaining to the local media. Your top story at 10, calls for help are growing inside USP Thompson. Thomas Bergami has only been the warden at USP Thompson for about four months. But the staff union is calling for his immediate removal. Bergami says his superiors at the Federal Bureau of Prisons were afraid of bad publicity and that they failed to back him up. Bergami retired recently. He spoke freely, but he didn't want his voice on tape. NPR and the Marshall Project found backing for his version of events in 200 pages of official documents, in interviews with several current and former Thompson staff, even union members, and senior officials like Associate Warden Denny Whitmore. It says on top, this is an emergency issue. Please help. And it's dated December 21st and 22nd. Given to Whitmore reads a handwritten letter. It it's an it urgent fine. warning to the warden, signed last December by 14 prisoners. They reported that corrections officers were recruiting prisoners, promising favors to ones who would physically attack the warden. Each individual inmate who have signed this document all testify that they have had encounters with many 
officers who have offered extra materials, food, trays, and privileges to verbally and physically assault Warden Bergami. The Bureau of Prisons investigated, but the investigator's report was short and dismissive. The investigator says he interviewed prisoners who signed the letter, that their stories were consistent. But because they wouldn't or couldn't tell the investigator the time and day the guards talked to them, the investigator says he can't check out their story. As a result, quote, this investigator could not confirm nor refute the allegations of the inmates. Damon Jackson has no doubt that the threat was real. Man, no guards, man, they, they vicious. Jackson was one of the prisoners who, at personal risk, signed the warning letter. The officers, they openly talk trash about the war, and they want them out the way. They openly talk about it like it ain't no secret. They wanted to continue doing what they were doing in the war and weren't going for it, so they were trying to get them out the way so they could continue beating inmates and running the prison how they wanted to run it. And I felt terrible for Warden Bergami. Denny Whitmore, the associate warden. His head's probably spinning like, wait a minute, Mike, there's a threat against my life, and there's, there's staff conspiring to, to have inmates uh, seriously assault me or try to kill me? And then to find out the staff are put back on their posts within like a three to five day period, it, you know, it just uh, it screams of unsafe. Whitmore and Bergami were two experienced wardens sent to Thompson by the Bureau of Prisons to correct things. Right away, they ran into resistance. Black shirt mafia. Black shirt mafia. That's what he says a large group of corrections officers and other staffers called themselves the black shirt mafia. Instead of wearing their uniforms, they came to work in black t-shirts, and they didn't wear their name tags. It was a sign to the prisoners and to the wardens that the guards could do what they wanted. Some wore t-shirts with white skulls, the logo of the Punisher, the Marvel Comics vigilante. Marvel retired the logo after it was appropriated by far-right groups and worn by some of the January 6th rioters. Bergami and Whitmore quickly issued a directive staff needed to wear their official prison uniforms. The wardens say the union complained to their boss at the Bureau of Prisons, the regional director, who then reversed the order and said it was okay for staff to wear black t-shirts and hoodies, but only with the union's logo. It totally diminished our authority. It totally undermined whatever we were trying to do there. It was one of many times they say officials at the agency sided with the union and the guards. There was one that pulled an inmate out of a cell and then swung him around and smashed the inmate's face off the wall. The BOP told us it responds to abuse allegations with, quote, rigorous investigations and decisive action. But the wardens say BOP officials ordered guards who faced repeated accusations to be reinstated. Union leaders deny the accusations of the wardens. They say it was the wardens who created problems and failed to protect the safety of prison staff. Brian Mueller is an officer for the National Council of Prison Locals. Union and management, it's a partnership. It's a give and take. This is a situation at Thompson where obviously it's well documented that management and, and labor did not get along. This summer, Bergami retired from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Whitmore, too. Both believe their path to promotion was now blocked. These were wardens who, just last year, were considered so skilled that they were sent to correct a bad prison. After the Bureau of Prisons shut down the special management unit in February and moved the inmates to other prisons, it expanded a low-security prison at Thompson. What happened was they closed it and they reopened the same building, and they had the same offices there. 
Topeka Sam is a prison advocate whose fiance is a prisoner at that low security facility. We talked to multiple family members of men who are there now. They say the brutal treatment of prisoners continues. So they may have moved the other population. They have a new population there, but it's the same officers there. So you didn't change anything. In September, the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Colette Peters, was called to Capitol Hill for an oversight hearing. The first thing she got asked... So let me talk about Thompson for a minute. ...was about her decision to shut down the unit at Thompson. Thank you, Senator. I, I don't know how an institution gets to that low, low point. Um, as you said, the warden reported he hadn't seen anything like that in his career. I, too, hadn't seen anything like that in my 30-plus year career in corrections and law enforcement. Far from Capitol Hill, former warden Thomas Bergami watched. He told us he felt validated by what she said. Director Peters took over last year as a reformer. Bergami felt allied with her, but that people under her resisted change. At that hearing, Peters cautioned it would take time to turn the culture at the Illinois prison. There's been retraining of staff, and the director said guards who were found responsible for abusing prisoners would be held accountable. But so far, no staffer has been fired for the damaging abuse at Thompson. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. This is NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 4.50 on All Things Considered, as life under climate change grows more difficult, one group says cash aid can help, meaning giving money to people to help them move out of harm's way. That's coming up at 4.50. President Biden's expected to hold a news conference at 7.15 tonight, and you'll hear it live here at 90.9 WBUR. He's likely to get questioned about his meeting today with the president of China and about the intense conflict between Israel and Hamas. Listen again at 7.15 tonight on the WBUR app. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm Robin Young. Our series on America's gun culture looks back at the agency charged with regulating guns, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, and the pushback against it. So abolish the ATF. That's what this is about. It has become anti-gun and anti-Second Amendment. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Northern California, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met for the first time in more than a year today on the sidelines of the APEC summit. That gathering in Woodside, California, comes amid tense relations between the two world powers. Biden told Xi that they must ensure competition does not veer into conflict. Mr. President, we know each other for a long time. We haven't always agreed, which was not surprised anyone. But our meetings have always been candid, straightforward, and useful. 
Never doubted what you've told me in terms of your candidate in which you speak. While President Xi told Biden through a translator that conflict and confrontation has unbearable consequences for both sides. The global economy is recovering, but its momentum remains sluggish. Industrial and supply chains are still under the threat of interruption and protectionism is rising. All these are grave problems. Rupert Murdoch is stepping down this week from the top of the global media powerhouse he built over seven decades. As Emily, as NPR's Emily Kopp tells us, Murdoch's eldest son is succeeding him. Lachlan Murdoch has taken his 92-year-old father's place as board chairman of News Corp. That's the Murdoch's company, which includes the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post. Lachlan is already CEO of Fox, and on Friday, he'll become the sole chairman there, too. While Rupert has long been a force in both media and politics, biographer Patty Manning says Lachlan is often underestimated. There is also a kind of idiot son trope, which seems to, you know, follow Lachlan around. And it's not fair. He says Lachlan has helped turn Fox into an immensely wealthy company, but also one riddled with scandal. Earlier this year, Fox paid nearly $800 million to settle a case stemming from 2020 election falsehoods. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Moore Healy plans to expand financial aid for Massachusetts students who attend public colleges and universities in the state. Her administration said today it plans to spend more than $60 million to help cover student costs. Officials estimate the plan will eliminate tuition and fees for about 25,000 students. The money will come from the state's new surtax on income above $1 million. New Hampshire has set the date for its first in the nation presidential primary. As WBR's Anthony Brooks reports, state officials are ignoring the wishes of the Democratic Party and President Joe Biden to have South Carolina vote before New Hampshire. New Hampshire voters will cast ballots on January 23rd, upholding the state's 100-year tradition of holding the nation's first presidential primary. That's a week after the Iowa caucuses and in a rebuke to the Democratic National Committee and President Biden a week before the primary in South Carolina. Governor Chris Sununu says the announcement is consistent with state law, which requires New Hampshire to be first. We haven't changed a thing in New Hampshire. We're going first because our law says so, because we've earned it. Um, We are the ones that are trying to be uh, Amazingly consistent. 45 names will be on the Republican and Democratic ballots, but not Joe Biden's because of the party's plan to put South Carolina first. State Democrats are organizing a write-in campaign for the president. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Somerville drivers will soon be fined for parking in a Davis Square intersection, but it won't be parking enforcement officers writing the tickets. The city plans to have so-called safety sticks up and running by the end of the year. The safety sticks are camera-mounted gray devices. They'll be able to take photos of the license plates of cars that park illegally at Elm and Chester Streets. Parking tickets will then be mailed to the offenders. It's 434. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And Greener U, a climate action construction firm that helps to cut building emissions throughout New England. Learn more at GreenerU.com. Clouds this evening and for the first part of the night tonight. Then we should have clearing skies by daybreak, sunshine tomorrow, all the way up to 60 degrees. 48 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station 
And from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. If you were to describe the relationship between the U.S. and China, you might say it's complicated. The two countries are intertwined on trade, national security, and overall economic health, even as diplomacy in the last few years has been rocky. Now, as President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping attempt a reset in San Francisco, China's economy is struggling. The country is dealing with high youth unemployment, a real estate debt crisis, wary international investors, and a slow rebound after COVID lockdowns. So does that give the U.S. more leverage in these discussions? Well, we're joined by Robert Daly of the Wilson Center, who directs the Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. Thanks for being here. Good to be with you. Um, How big an economic funk is China in right now? Is this a country in decline or just growing less quickly than it used to be? I think the latter. It's growing less quickly. It is in the midst of its biggest economic crisis since it began opening up in 1978. But I think that many in the West have been too quick and too triumphalist to to declare that this is peak China and that China is done. There's, uh, you know, they face structural difficulties, but they still have a lot of strengths. Does that present opportunities for the United States in this moment? Well, the question right now is how much is Xi's worry about his weakness at home, a driver of his willingness to come to San Francisco and his willingness to perhaps offer some sweeteners to the United States to stabilize the relationship? She when he speaks to the Chinese people, always emphasizes confidence. You should be confident that our form of development is correct, that we have the right form of government. You should be confident in China's culture. But he's made a lot of public misjudgments over the past several years, beginning with backing Putin on the eve of the invasion, his handling of COVID at the outset, and especially his handling of COVID at the very end, when he put cities like Shanghai under lockdown for months and then suddenly dropped the lockdown and millions died. Now the economy is slowing, youth unemployment is well over 20%, and this is all happening publicly. So he may be feeling less confident when he comes to see Biden. And so can you play out how that might be useful to the Biden administration right now? Well, the Biden administration already feels that it is in a position of strength vis-a-vis China, at least in the security realm. It has greatly strengthened uh, its alliances uh, throughout Europe and with our allies in the Pacific, uh, as well as in the Americas. It has brought Korea and Japan back together. It has concluded the AUKUS agreement with Australia and the UK to build nuclear submarines for Australia and to work on hypersonic hypersonic weapon systems. That's all aimed at China. It has strengthened what's called the Quad, Europe, uh, Japan, Australia, and the United States, also aimed at China. It's got more bases opened in the Philippines, and now NATO has a, a, a China or ASA-facing mission. So, so with all the of Biden that positioning, confident. yeah, where yeah. does that, where does that put the Biden administration vis-a-vis China's economic weakness right now? Well, I think that the Biden administration knows it's it's too soon to make a call. This could be a few bad quarters or one or two bad years. Uh, this crisis in China is certainly nowhere nearly as bad as our financial crisis in 2008 yet. 
and we weren't done then. So I think that the Biden administration is not looking to take short-term advantage of China's economic weakness, nor is it clear that Xi's confidence is really dented. As far as we know, he still believes that the East is rising and that the West is declining. And so if this is going to change anything, what might it change? It gives us a chance uh, to stabilize the relationship, which is the word that both sides are using. Uh, You mentioned a, a reset at the beginning. I don't think that's quite right. The trajectory and nature of the relationship, which is not only complicated but rivalrous, uh, is likely to remain in place. But both sides would like to reduce the, uh, the chances of conflict even as they compete vigorously. And this kind of dialogue between leaders and in the lead up, uh, the dialogues between secretarial level people can do that. It can bring some stability, but not change the nature of a relationship that probably hasn't found bottom yet. The U.S. has been steadily increasing its economic controls on China under the Trump and Biden administrations. Do you think that's likely to continue or could you envision some of these restrictions being lifted and the U.S. letting up a bit? I don't think that the export controls that are designed to hamper China's development of uh, advanced node semiconductors and to limit its ability to get uh, leading AI, that's not going to change because the security rationale for that has been loudly declared and it's by its nature absolutist and expansionist. We have told China we're not going to give it any technologies that it could use in weapons that target us. And once you start down that road, you really can't walk that back. That's Robert Daly, director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you. Clouds are pretty common on planets. Earth has clouds made of water. Venus has clouds made of sulfuric acid. And astronomers have wondered what kinds of clouds might exist on planets outside of our solar system. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports that they've just been able to probe the clouds on one distant planet. And what they found was sand. The planet is called WASP-107b. It orbits a star that's a little smaller and cooler than our sun, over 200 light years away. The planet is a gas giant that's about the size of Jupiter, but far less dense, leading some to refer to it as a cotton candy planet. Lynn Desen is with the Institute of Astronomy from the Leuven University in Belgium. She says the planet is fluffy. The fact that it's so fluffy implies that we can really look very deep inside its atmosphere. The Hubble Space Telescope saw signs that this planet had some kind of cloud layer. But there was no way of saying what could be the composition of that cloud layer. Recently, though, she and her colleagues checked out that planet with the James Webb Space Telescope. This powerful telescope can make more precise measurements and sees a different kind of light that can reveal more about clouds. In a new report published online by the journal Nature, they say the clouds are made of silicates basically sand. It seems that on this super hot planet, sand particles act like water does here on Earth. The tiny bits of sand form clouds and rain down to a hotter interior. Then they evaporate and travel back up to form clouds once more. Laura Kreidberg is an astronomer with the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy who wasn't part of the research team. She says in the past, scientists have theorized about all kinds of strange clouds that planets might have. Clouds made of salt or rock. But there's a difference between having an idea, just a theory, and detecting it with your own eyes. And so for me, that was the most exciting part of this, is that we can finally see 
for ourselves exactly what this cloud is made out of. And this could be just the beginning of a bevy of otherworldly cloud discoveries. Astronomers who've pondered another far-off planet, for example, suggested that it might have clouds made of liquid metal and rain made of rubies and sapphires. They want to check that one out with the James Webb Space Telescope to see if precious gems might really fall like rain. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The UK's Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling today that found the British government's plan to offshore its asylum policy was illegal. The proposal had been to send those seeking asylum in Britain to Rwanda, but judges determined that authorities in the East African nation might not sufficiently ensure the safety of the deportees, as Willem Marx reports. After 18 months of legal challenges, the Conservative government's controversial idea to send thousands of asylum seekers to a third country faced its final test. The policy was first introduced at a time when tens of thousands of migrants began arriving on British shores via dangerous small boat journeys from northern France and was designed to deter others in the future who might be considering their own irregular route to Britain. At the centre of today's ruling was a legal term, reformant. It refers to the possibility that asylum seekers sent to Rwanda could one day be returned to their country of origin and once there face possible persecution. Delivering the decision was the court's president, Robert Reid, who explained the judge's thought process. The changes needed to eliminate the risk of reformant may be delivered in the future, but they have not been shown to be in place now. The high number of migrant arrivals had threatened to overwhelm the UK's poorly funded and understaffed immigration system, so often at the heart of heated political debate. The plan won some public support, but attracted international condemnation from human rights groups and even the United Nations Refugee Agency. And on a practical level, authorities were unable to even implement the policy, thanks to legal challenges from those facing deportation. The ruling was far from abstract for some of those involved today. Sophie Lucas from law firm Duncan Lewis has several clients that stand to benefit immediately, she says, from this decision. Many of our clients are survivors of torture or trafficking. The last year or so, they have been left in limbo. They are incredibly relieved today that they can start dreaming of a future which does not involve being removed to Rwanda. Within hours of the ruling, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak acknowledged to a rowdy parliament that the court had blocked his current preferred course of action. There are further elements that they want additional certainty on and noted changes and noted that changes can be delivered in the future to address those issues. But he insisted he already had several alternatives and would seek to circumvent this latest setback to his polarising policy. The government has been working already on a new treaty with Rwanda and we will finalise that in light of today's judgement. His main political opponent, Labour Party leader and former human rights lawyer Keir Starmer delivered his own verdict and it was scathing. He was told over and over again that this would happen, that it wouldn't work and it was just the latest Tory gimmick. But he bet everything on it, and now he's totally exposed. The central pillar of his government has crumbled beneath him. 
Does he want to apologise to the country for wasting £140 million of taxpayer cash and wasting his entire time in office? The Rwanda policy, as it became known, was only ever meant to be a short-term plan, a five-year trial that would see Rwanda receive $150 million from British taxpayers. But like the first aircraft chartered last summer to transport asylum seekers to East Africa, it has never really taken off. For NPR News, I'm Bella Marks from London. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Republicans in Congress have been fighting publicly and privately and threatening their own party's ability to govern. A new NPR poll shows that voters want to see compromise. The story behind the numbers coming up in 20 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Lauren Halloran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenhalloran.com, and Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby. Closing soon. Learn more at pem.org. Clouds lead us into the night tonight, then we could see some clearing toward dawn, breezy and chilly overnight, about 40 degrees. Tomorrow should be mainly sunny. We may reach 60 degrees and possibly the mid-60s on Friday. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Joy Street and Brick Bottom Artists Associations. See the work of over 80 artists at Joy Street and Brick Bottom Open Studios this weekend. Brickbottom.org slash events. And Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. When Diana Nyad finished swimming more than 100 miles from Cuba to Florida at 64 years old, she had these inspirational words for her fans. You're never too old to chase your dreams. That's right. We talked to one of the makers of a new film dramatizing one of the most unbelievable feats of human endurance tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Climate change poses a particular threat to many of the world's poorest communities, where it's fueling an upswing in deadly flooding and mudslides. Governments have been trying to move people out of harm's way, but an aid group in Uganda is testing whether it's more effective to just give people a sizable cash grant with no strings attached. NPR's Nareet Eisenman reports. Mount Elgon is an extinct volcano in eastern Uganda whose slopes are home to hundreds of thousands of people who eke out a living growing vegetables on small plots cleared from the forest. But as they've cut down ever more trees and as climate change has made annual rains ever more intense, the mountain has become increasingly prone to mudslides. 
Wasika Mubarak, a young father, recalls a devastating one in October of 2018. I saw a great wave of water rushing down the mountain, he says, in the local language, Limasaba. It was picking up giant boulders, swallowing houses. Mubarak says he ran home screaming to his wife, who was cooking in the kitchen with their two little boys, aged six and five. She grabbed the oldest and raced outside. Before she or Mubarak could go back for the youngest, the water surged past them, blocking the way. It took us two hours to reach my son, says Mubarak. He'd been hit with a rock and was bleeding from the head. But the boy recovered, and for Mubarak, what happened in the years that followed has felt almost as scary. With their home destroyed, the only new place they could afford to move to seemed just as dangerous. It's also right on the mountain, says Mubarak, and there are cracks in the ground around it. So we've been living in fear that at any time, a landslide could kill us. A recent survey by Give Directly, an American aid nonprofit that's known for its research-driven approach, suggests many of Mount Elgon's residents share Mubarak's desperation to find a home off of the mountain. And Give Directly's global research director, Miriam Lakaroketa, who's based in Uganda, notes that after a mudslide in 2010, Uganda's government tried to solve the problem by buying land in another region and resettling thousands of Mount Elgon's residents there. It looks like a really great idea. Let's move these people to this place that is not yet overpopulated, give them larger pieces of land than they have currently. But La Caraqueta says before long, many people returned to Mount Elgon. The government was slow to build the new housing, but also the new land was hundreds of miles east. The fact is that people did not want to move to those places. With a different language, different traditions, no connections. Most significantly, says La Caraqueta, the effort was plagued by a problem that's also undermined other attempts to help people in Mount Elgon. It was a top-down solution. As human beings, we all want agency, the ability to make decisions based on what we believe is important for us. And I think that the big gap was going to the people and trying to understand from them, what do you want to do? One way to do that, says La Caraqueta, Give people aid in the form of cash grants that they can use however they see fit. For decades, her nonprofit, Give Directly, has been using cash to lift people out of extreme poverty. And so Give Directly has launched a study to see if this approach can also help people on Mount Elgon protect themselves from climate change. Earlier this year, they surveyed them to find out how much money would you need to relocate to a new setup of your choice? We got an approximate figure of $1,800. Then Give Directly started handing out no-strings grants in exactly that amount to about 4,000 households on the mountain. Charles Kenny is a senior fellow at the think tank Center for Global Development. I think it's a great idea. Right now, he says, too much of climate aid is spent on projects aimed at preventing further climate change. But the thing about climate change is it's having an impact now, and where it's having an impact is in the world's poorest countries. Kenny also notes that prior studies have already shown that poor people tend to use no-strings cash aid pretty effectively. I think it makes particular sense Uh, When it comes to the climate crisis, giving people cash allows them to respond in the ways that they know best. For Mubarak, the benefit is already clear. I immediately bought land in a nearby district, out of the dangerous area, he says, along with metal sheets to build a house. He's still working on it, but he's already been able to move in. I'm finally going to save my family, he says. 
Then there's Jane Florence Kalenda, a 56-year-old widow with four kids. She says she too has used her grant to buy new land, but she also decided to spend it on school fees, even though that's left her a few hundred dollars short of what she'll need to complete a new house. She's hoping to raise the money in a few months by growing some onions from seeds she also bought with the grant. Lakero Keta, the Give Directly head of research, says as much as she wants people to move off the mountain quickly, it's important to respect decisions like that. We're dealing with human beings, she says, not lab rats. Narit Eisenman, NPR News. Kevin Hart has been named the winner of the 25th Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. He joins a prestigious group of joke tellers, including Richard Pryor, Tina Fey, and Jon Stewart. Hart will be treated to a celebrity roast at the Kennedy Center in March that will air later on television. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has more. Kevin Hart likes to joke about trying to look cool, even though he's just over five feet tall, like when he bought a really big truck to impress girls. I'm at the stoplight. I saw this girl. I was like, damn, babe, you look good. Why don't you pull over? Let me talk to you for a second. She was like, all right. He kind of cute. Her and her girlfriend high five. It was happy. She was like, get out. Come talk to me. And I can't get out my truck, right? I got I to gotta jump out. But when I jumped out, I didn't have a good landing. I stumbled a little bit. And All I heard was, oh, my God, he doesn't have any knees. And they just... The Mark Twain Prize is like a Lifetime Achievement Award. The Kennedy Center says it honors comedians who've contributed to society in ways similar to Twain himself. Kevin Hart isn't known for social satire, but he is known for talking about his fears of things like roller coasters and dolphins. He also jokes a lot about being a dad. Me and this boy got into it at Chuck E. Cheese. It It wasn't a fight, it was an altercation. We got into a little altercation because... My baby was in the balls. He was throwing the balls at my daughter's head. He throwing the balls, hit my daughter right in the head. Bye. My daughter's so damn stupid, she thought it was a game. She playing. Kevin Hart started his career at amateur night at a club in his hometown, Philadelphia. Today, his stand-up fills arenas. His 11 films, including the Jumanji and Ride Along movies, have grossed more than $4 billion. Hart was raised by a single mom. His dad was addicted to drugs and was in and out of jail. Hart told Fresh Air's Terry Gross he learned that, quote, stupid moments can become life-changing. Seeing my dad go through all of the turmoil, that he went through basically put me in a position to just say, that's not for me. That's not the life that I want. In 2019, Hart was invited to host the Oscars. Critics said he was the wrong choice because of old tweets and jokes that were homophobic. He declined the offer because he said he didn't want to be a distraction. He apologized to the LGBTQ community. He wrote, my goal is to bring people together, not tear us apart. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple insurers side by side, including options that offer same day approval. Learn more at policygenius.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, 
Its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to recognize and report phishing. More at cisa.gov slash secureourworld. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. President Biden's expected to hold a news conference tonight at 7.15, and you'll hear it live here at 90.9 WBUR. He's likely to get questioned about his meeting today with the president of China and about the intense conflict between Israel and Hamas. Listen again at 7.15 on the WBUR app. 48 degrees in Boston at 4.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit, playing now through December 10th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. Oceanstatejoblot.com. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Two of the most powerful leaders on the planet met face-to-face today in San Francisco, Chinese leader Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden. I think it's paramount that you and I understand each other clearly, leader to leader, with no misconceptions or miscommunication. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Today's meeting comes amid rising tensions between the U.S. and China. Also ahead, how a reclaimed Veterans Affairs campus in West L.A. could help with the city's homelessness crisis. From extreme heat to wildfire smoke to pollution, climate change from fossil fuels is making people sicker or even killing them. And how comedian John Oliver helped lobby for the lucky New Zealand bird of the century. It's 501. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping are meeting in California today. It is their first interaction in a year. And NPR's John Ruwich says they both underscored the importance of managing the U.S.-China relationship responsibly. The two leaders smiled and shook hands before starting their talks at a historic house and garden in the hills south of San Francisco. In opening remarks, Biden said there is no substitute for face-to-face meetings. And he said he valued the conversation because it's paramount that the two understand each other clearly to prevent the competition between China and the United States from veering into conflict. Deep mistrust and disagreements have plagued the relationship, but she sounded an optimistic tone. Speaking through an interpreter, he called China-U.S. ties the most important bilateral relationship in the world and said while there have been disagreements, the relationship has kept moving forward. For two large countries, like China and the United States, turning their back on each other is not an option. John Ruich, NPR News, San Francisco. Following the vote in the House to approve a stopgap measure to keep the government operating, lawmakers in the Senate are trying to move ahead on a package of their own. Senators looking to speed forward with both Republicans and Democrats apparently ready to pass the bill well before current funding expires just after midnight on Saturday. However, the measure will only be a temporary fix, setting up a bigger showdown in the new year. 
Palestinian officials are warning Gaza's on the verge of a total blackout of telecommunications if it does not get fuel soon. Israel has allowed fuel into Gaza for the first time since its siege there after the attacks in Israel by Hamas militants October 7th. But as NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports, Israel has also imposed tight restrictions on how the fuel can be used. The United Nations Relief Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, confirms Israel has allowed in some fuel to enter Gaza from the Rafah border crossing with Egypt. But it's a tiny amount, just half a tanker, at a time when everything from Gaza's desalination plants, essential for drinking water, to sewage systems, to operating rooms and ICUs in hospitals, have been forced to close for lack of fuel. And the refugee agency UNRWA says Israeli authorities will only allow the fuel they have let in to be used to transport and distribute aid into Gaza. It says the amount allowed in is not even 10% of what the agency needs each day to, quote, sustain life-saving activities in Gaza. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. Voting by members of the United Auto Workers Union on a new contract deal continues with workers at Ford said to be close to wrapping up voting, but many large factories have not yet finished, and some opposition is becoming more apparent. General Motors voting on the agreement appears too close to call. Workers at Chrysler and Jeep Parents Stellantis voted overwhelmingly to approve the contract. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today, the Dow 163 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council today has unanimously approved a plan that will require police to compile data on gun trafficking. City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo sponsored the measure. He says the information is critical. The study and report would compile data on the flow of firearms and review ways that illegal firearms are transported into the city in order to help law enforcement and policymakers determine ways to decrease and end the flow of illegal firearms into the city of Boston. The ordinance indicates that as many as 90 percent of firearms recovered from crime scenes in Boston in 2021 came from 18 other states. Boston City Councilors today also unanimously passed an anti-bullying policy that will govern its own members. Council President Ed Flynn proposed the measure. The council has been plagued by member outbursts, name-calling, and tense arguments in recent years. The northern lights were visible from Mount Washington on Sunday. As NHPR's Mara Haplamazian reports, sightings could be more frequent in the next year as the sun approaches a solar maximum. Ryan Knapp is a meteorologist at the Mount Washington Observatory. And on Sunday, he got a treat. It was a dull glow to begin with, and then it got brighter and whiter, and then eventually around 10 o'clock on Sunday evening, we saw pillars and ribbons that were dancing across the sky. Knapp says the sun goes through an 11-year cycle. In the middle of it, solar activity peaks. That includes big ejections from the sun's corona, which cause the northern lights. Those electrons interact with gases in our atmosphere and create the greens, purples, blues, and reds in the lights. Knapp says the weather conditions need to be right, too. A clear sky, not too much moonlight. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. A seven-time Paralympic medalist and two-time Boston Marathon champion has been elected the new chair of the Board of Governors for the Boston Athletic Association. Dr. Sherry Blowett is chief medical officer at the Spalding Rehab Network. She succeeds Dr. Michael O'Leary as the Athletic Association Board Chair. O'Leary will remain as an active board member of the BAA. Some clouds around tonight only falling to about 40 degrees, then sunny, dry, milder tomorrow, up around 60. It is 45 now in Boston at 5.07.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today, about 30 miles south of San Francisco at a luxe historic estate, President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping sat down together for a conversation that's been a long time coming. There is no substitute to -to face-to-face discussions. I've always found our discussions straightforward and frank, and I've always appreciated them. This was the first time the two leaders have spoken in a year, even though there have been a lot of tensions between the U.S. and China. NPR's senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins us now from Woodside, California. Hey, Tam. Hello. So I heard you were ringside for the start of this big meeting. Paint us a picture. Like, what was it like? Well, the meeting is at this beautiful, historic estate nestled in the hills south of San Francisco. It's isolated. It's beautiful. Uh, Biden stood at the mansion doors as Xi's limo pulled up. They shook hands (laughs) for the cameras uh, before heading into this ornate room where the American and Chinese delegations sat across from each other along a long table. Um, Biden spoke first, welcoming Xi and explaining why he believes it is so important to keep the lines of communication open in order to quote, understand each other clearly, leader to leader, leader with no misconceptions or miscommunication. Uh, Biden added that there are major challenges that would benefit from the two powers working together to address them. He mentioned climate change, narcotics trafficking, and artificial intelligence. But I have to say, Xi's remarks were maybe even more interesting than what President Biden said. Huh. Um, he said that the U.S.-China relationship has always faced problems of one kind or another, but turning their backs on each other isn't an option. Planet Earth, he said, is big enough for the two countries to succeed. Ah, that sounds a little reassuring. Uh, Let me ask you this. We've talked a lot on this show about how Biden has tried to focus his foreign policy on countering China, like whether that's economically or from a national security standpoint. And it was a big focus for former President Trump as well. So let me ask you, we're about a year away from the next presidential election. What are the political stakes for Biden when it comes to China? Yeah, as you say, it was a big focus for former President Trump, as as well as it is now for Biden. Uh, Trump being the front runner in next year's presidential race on the Republican side. Um, and uh, China has been a big feature in the Republican primary, with candidates each trying to show that they are the toughest. And there's also a lot of concern among voters. New data from the Chicago Council that I reported on earlier this week shows that there is a record level of Americans who see China as a, quote, critical threat. That is particularly pronounced among Republicans, but also a majority of independents and Democrats feel that way as well. Um, Ultimately, though, when it comes to voting, most people don't cast a ballot based on foreign policy issues. So honestly, the election stakes from this meeting probably aren't that high. And I mean, there are a lot of other foreign policy issues that are big concerns for voters right now, like the war between Israel and Hamas. Right. And I expect that President Biden will be pressed on that later today in his press conference. The latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out today shows a majority of Democrats say Israel has gone too far in its response to the October 7th uh, attacks by Hamas. 
Um, and it and it also shows that there's a division over whether the U.S. should continue funding Ukraine's war with Russia. Biden asked Congress for more than one hundred and five billion dollars for this. That request uh, is not part of the government spending bill that is moving now through the House. So Biden is in a really difficult moment trying to carry out this foreign policy that he says is really important. That is NPR's Tamara Keith in Woodside, California. Thank you so much, Tam. You're welcome. Well, back here in Washington, Congress seems on track to keep the lights on for the federal government. A new spending bill would fund the government into early next year. House Speaker Mike Johnson says this will give Congress time to pass full-year spending bills. But infighting among Republicans threatens their ability to get anything done. All this as a new NPR-PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows that Americans just want compromise. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh and NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro are here now. Good to have you both with us. Hey, Ari. Hey, Ari. Deirdre, let's start with you. Um, Republicans are fighting each other in public so much lately that it has actually gotten physical. Is this all spilling over into legislating? It is. Republican divisions derailed two more spending bills this week after two failed to advance in the House last week. Congress is doing what it usually does. It kicked the can down the road to avoid a shutdown on Friday. Speaker Mike Johnson is saying this gives House Republicans more time to do all 12 individual spending bills so they can strengthen their hand negotiating with the Senate. But spoiler alert, House Republicans showed again today they still cannot get on the same page. The bills that they're writing have such drastic cuts in them that moderate Republicans started to vote no. And then some of the hardliners who didn't like the stopgap bill blocked the speaker from even debating one of the Republican bills. This does not bode well for getting that broader spending bill early next year. Chaos. Domenico, what do Americans (laughs) make of this? Well, most in our poll that's out today, you know, very clearly said that they want to see compromise and that threats of a shutdown are not appropriate to use in budget negotiations. Two thirds said that it's more important for Speaker Johnson to compromise rather than stand on principle, even if it means gridlock. But there's an almost 40 point gap between Democrats who want compromise and Republicans who are pretty split on this. You know, that could really complicate Johnson's ability to pass legislation that a Democratic controlled Senate and a Democratic president can agree to. And as Deirdre mentioned, We're already seeing some of that unease with Johnson's most conservative members. Well, this funding package does not include additional money for Israel or Ukraine that the Biden administration has requested. What do Americans think about that? Yeah, it wasn't in the stopgap spending legislation, and our polling gives some clues as to why. 36% said that they don't want to authorize funding for either war, while 35% said that they want to fund both. With numbers like those, it really makes it tough to find consensus, especially when you consider that almost half of independents, half of younger voters, four in 10 Republicans, and four in 10 non-whites don't want to fund either war. And so what are the prospects in an election year that Congress can get anything done on these questions? A broader spending bill, aid to Ukraine, any of that, Deirdre? House Republican leaders are seeing these polls. They've warned their members earlier this week that any government shutdown is super unpopular. It would also make it really hard for them to demonstrate they can govern and keep their majority in 2024. In terms of a broader budget deal, if Congress can't reach a deal by early next year, they face an automatic across-the-board spending cut in April of 1% all federal programs. That provision came out of the debt ceiling deal from earlier this year. Members are warning that could be a huge problem, especially for defense programs. In terms of the money for Ukraine, our poll really shows the split 
that underlines this divide that's been growing, especially among House Republicans in the last year. More than half of House Republicans already opposed Ukraine money the last time they voted on it, including the new Speaker Mike Johnson. Senate leaders are trying to keep Israel and Ukraine aid in the same package so they can pass both. But the splits on both of these issues makes it super complicated. Okay, so if more fights lie ahead, how is that likely to play with voters in 2024? What does that likely mean for control of the House and Senate? I mean, we're seeing a lot of cynicism toward politics and politicians. President Biden's approval ratings are lagging. Seven in 10 respondents think that the political system can work fine, but that it's the actual members of Congress who are the problem. That can lead to frustrations, flirtations with third parties. And President Biden really has a lot of work to do to shore up his coalition. But look, we're a year away from congressional and presidential elections. And registering frustrations now with an incumbent president is very different than voting against him next year especially if it's former President Trump on the other side of that ballot. The other impact of the divisions that Domenico talks about in this ugly, toxic atmosphere we saw this week is that more lawmakers are starting to think it's time to retire. I talked to one veteran lawmaker who says those decisions usually come over the holidays after time with family. We've seen a string of announcements from both parties, and I would expect some more before the end of this year. NPR's Deirdre Walsh and Domenico Montanaro, thank you both. You're welcome. Thank you. And now a story about foreign influence on a national election, but probably not what you're thinking. New Zealand's bird of the century was announced today after a two-week campaign that pitted many of the country's native birds against each other. Now, despite the name, bird of the century is actually an annual contest, and this year it got a little bit out of control. New Zealand's contest is not actually restricted to just New Zealand. Anyone in the world can vote as long as they have a valid email. And yeah, comedian that. and last week tonight host John Oliver got involved. As the official campaign manager for what we believe to be the best candidate for New Zealand's bird of the century, I'm talking, of course, about the Putekiteki. <laughs> Now, that's a water bird with a big mane of feathers around its head. The New Zealand Department of Conservation describes its call as a kind of growl. It also exhibits some unusual antics, like eating feathers to help it vomit up parasites. Or... They have a mating dance where they both grab a clump of wet grass and chest bump each other before standing around unsure of what to do next. Now, to be fair, the contest organizer, the conservation group Forest and Bird, did encourage people to campaign for their favorite bird, but they might not have imagined what John Oliver had in mind. His show bought billboards in Tokyo, Mumbai, Paris, London, even a small town in Wisconsin to sway the vote for the Puteki Teki, which Oliver dubbed the Lord of the Wings. A record 350,000 ballots poured in from 195 countries. And the result? The Puteki Teki won by a landslide. It's sort of a come from behind bird for sure. I would say that if you thought about New Zealand birds, the first thing you'd think of is the kiwi, the kia, and then they also have this big fat pigeon who won a couple years ago. Science writer and naturalist Ryan Mandelbaum voted for that big fat pigeon. And even though the pigeon didn't win, Mandelbaum says all this global interest is a win in and of itself. It's gotten people paying attention to the birds of New Zealand from all around the world. And hopefully it kind of leads to more conservation of these birds. An unusual happy ending to a story about election interference.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the creative force behind the band Beirut talks about drawing inspiration from the dark winter of Arctic Norway. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Some modest gains for stocks today on Wall Street. The Dow rose nearly a half percent. S&P grew by less than two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained less than one-tenth of a percent. Four Massachusetts zip codes are among the top 100 when it comes to the most expensive places to buy a home in the U.S. The real estate website RealtyHop finds that Boston's Back Bay is the 17th most expensive zip code. Median home prices in Back Bay are $3.7 million dollars. Boston's Beacon Hill, Wellesley, and Newton also cracked the top 100, with median home prices topping $2 million. The most expensive home prices in the country are in Atherton, California, right near San Francisco, with a median price tag of nearly $8 million. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar. With Scratch Kitchens, customizing dishes for guests with allergies or dietary restrictions. Eight locations in Greater Boston, Burton'sGrill.com. And Treffler's, specializing in the restoration of furniture, decorative arts, paintings, and upholstery by skilled artisans. Custom framing, too, in Newton and at Treffler.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Clouds lead us into the nighttime. Then we could see clearing skies by dawn. Breezy and chilly tonight, about 40 for a low. Tomorrow, mainly sunny. We may reach 60 degrees. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The best chance at turning around veterans' homelessness may be on some of the country's most expensive real estate in West Los Angeles. The sprawling VA campus there was donated to Civil War veterans in 1887. But veterans have spent years trying to reclaim parts of the campus through lawsuits, corruption trials, and recently, a homeless veterans encampment at the gates of the VA. Now, NPR's Quill Lawrence reports the campus may finally be on track to house hundreds of L.A.'s homeless vets. The homeless veteran outreach. Any veterans by chance? I'm walking down Hollywood Boulevard with some vets who do this for a living, Alejandro Rocha and John Fulmer. Morning, veteran services. Morning, any veterans here? Do you happen to know any military veterans in the area? It doesn't take long. They meet an army vet in his late 40s named Chris Brown. Man, if you guys... Eleven Bravo, me too. Eleven Bravo means infantry. These guys speak the same language. Brown is leaning on a broken bed frame he used as a shelter last night. I've been outside since 2010. So, you know, I've been out, you know... uh... L.A. has, by far, the most homeless vets in the country, almost 4,000 by the yearly national count. 
The crazy thing is, it also has among the country's largest VA facilities, a 387-acre campus in affluent West L.A. that was donated as a home for veterans of the Civil War. Fulmer and Rocha have thoughts about it. We have a lot of activism over giving the land back to the vets. There's a social justice issue. Because for decades, much of the land use had nothing to do with veterans. They're supposed to use the campus to serve the veteran community. So, like, you can't build anything on a foundation of neglect. That neglect is common knowledge for L.A. veterans. A fancy private high school leases some of the VA's land for its gym. UCLA built its baseball stadium on the campus. There's a golf course and an oil well. The VA settled a lawsuit in 2015 and agreed to build hundreds of housing units for vets, but then only managed to build dozens. And the VA is being sued again. Now, however, years behind schedule, a significant number of vets are finally living here. Steve Peck served in Vietnam. He leads the veterans group U.S. Vets, part of a consortium developing buildings for housing on the campus including the one he's showing me around. The first building that we developed that was for senior vets, 62 and older, half of them for veterans who had severe mental illness, and that filled up in less than four months. It's a 1940s Mission Revival-style building, restored stucco on the outside. Inside, it's got 59 hotel-style studios and one-bedroom apartments. It's a nice home. They're proud to call it home. A lot of the veterans who came in here after they were here for two weeks, went to the social workers and said, how long do I get to stay here? <laughs> and she said, this is it, this is your home. Peck's organization railed against the VA's mismanagement for decades. He seems bemused to be defending the place now. He says much of the work over the past five years was unseen, literally underground, updating 100-year-old infrastructure. Outside, Peck points out construction sites everywhere, finally visible, with more than 200 units housing vets. The next site slated to open is for women vets with children. It's more difficult to say, hey, you're not doing anything when we have more than 500 units already completed or in progress. We're getting there. The plan is a real community with a village feel, a cafe, a restaurant, and a new metro station, a vibrant enclave of affordable housing for vets living in the richest part of L.A. Veterans have heard this before. And I think that just shows, shows what the problem is over the years. Rob Reynolds is an Iraq vet. When he hears about shiny new restaurants or a massive new park-and-ride garage for the metro station, he goes on high alert. A lot of these entities that are on the land that are unrelated to veteran housing or health care have got whatever their wants are over the needs of the veterans. Reynolds helped galvanize a community of homeless vets who started camping out at the VA's gates about three years ago. They called it Veterans Row. He says the VA still felt like a place that would always find a way to tell you no. There was no 24-hour shelter, so you'd have veterans that were showing up in the afternoon being like, hey, I need a place to stay, and they would tell them, oh, no, come back tomorrow or the following day, but you can't stay on the property tonight. Then they would end up out in the street. They finally build up enough courage to ask for help and then get turned away. You just sever the trust, and then it makes it that much harder to get them in the next time. Veterans Row got media attention, and the vets there felt like they had a shared mission, says Reynolds. Under that pressure, the VA brought the entire encampment inside its gates. It's now a compound of 140 basic huts, including ones that are available 24-7 for vets who turn up. Some vets have moved from there into the newly built housing on the campus. Rob Reynolds took me to one of the apartments to see Robert Canas. He's an Air Force vet. What do you think of the apartment? Nice, huh? Uh, Rob, what's it been, about a month? Not even a week? 
two weeks, yeah, so. After his service, he struggled with alcohol, among other things. I was drinking heavily just to fall asleep on the streets. I was drinking a lot. It wasn't until I got here that I got sobered up. So one month turned into almost now two years of being sober. However, what's sad is still finding all the obstacles here at the VA, and they antagonize you. So Canis is in VA housing now. He got sober after doing therapy here at VA, and he still sees the VA as an antagonist. One reason is the guy sitting in his apartment right now on the couch. Joshua Erickson. Where are you from? Los Angeles, California. Erickson also served in the infantry. I was 2011 to 2013, 11 Bravo. Until he stepped on a landmine in Afghanistan and lost one leg below the knee. He's got a brain injury and a thousand yard stare. He's up in Canis's new apartment to use the Wi-Fi. Erickson is still living in the tiny huts encampment because as a 100% disabled vet, he makes too much money from disability to qualify for a voucher from housing and urban development, HUD. It's that I make Social Security on top of, but it's because of my disability for the leg and, you know, I got PTSD as well. Erickson says he'd like to go to school and learn to make prostheses, like the one he's wearing. He used to have three different prosthetic legs, but the others got lost or stolen while he was on the street. His buddy Kana says this is why he's still frustrated. He stepped on the landmine trying to rescue another soldier. I get this beautiful apartment and he can't live here. And he even says he feels like he's not wanted here by both the community and the VA. They want you homeless and desperate. That's how deep the distrust runs. Kana says that while in his new VA apartment getting VA care. The VA knows it needs to fix that trust problem. We have people who are getting harmed now because they are afraid to get services or they're convinced that the VA is out to get them or is evil. John Kuhn leads VA's efforts to end homelessness in L.A. I'm asking those veterans to get up and try again, that you have a home here. You have an opportunity here to reach out, to get the service you are entitled to. We are here one-third of our staff are veterans. Kuhn knows that some veterans like Josh Erickson are caught in the red tape. Kuhn says a veteran's disability check shouldn't count as income, but says it might take action by Congress to change that rule. Which sounds daunting, but Congress often comes together on veterans' issues, including approving hundreds of millions of dollars for the West L.A. VA campus. So Kuhn is hopeful. We have the resources. We have the team. There's no reason for any of our veterans in L.A. to be homeless. Kuhn has worked on homelessness for 30 years. L.A. has always had the country's highest number of vets on the streets. If the plan for this campus stays on track, Kuhn says there's no reason the VA can't house all of them. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Israeli troops entered the main hospital complex in Gaza City as thousands of civilians and staff shelter inside. Our story is coming up at 5.50 on WBUR. President Biden is expected to hold a news conference at 7.15 tonight. We'll bring it to you live here on WBUR. Biden's likely to get questioned about his face-to-face meeting today with the president of China and about the intense conflict between Israel and Hamas. Listen again at 7.15 and on the WBUR app. If you're a newcomer to Boston or just a frequent traveler, there's a fair chance you pass through Logan International Airport in East Boston. But have you ever truly explored the neighborhood around Logan? It's time for a tip from our field guide to Boston. 
East Boston, or Eastie as locals call it, is an immigrant neighborhood to its core. For almost two centuries, first-generation Americans have made it home. And today, Latinos from Colombia, El Salvador, and Guatemala make East Boston one of the most ethnically diverse communities in the city. A tip from locals, make sure you go get a pupusa, the melty, cheesy, doughy Salvadoran staple, at 2 Metapon on Bennington Street. To get more familiar with what makes Boston's communities unique, check out the Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, the Senate is moving swiftly to vote on a temporary government spending package as Congress seeks to keep the holiday season free of drama over a government shutdown. Republican and Democratic leaders in the Senate appear poised to pass the bill with just days to spare before funding expires on Saturday. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the House bill is not perfect but does accomplish two key goals. It will avoid a government shutdown and it will do so without any of the cruel cuts or poison pills that the hard right pushed for. I think it was very important that Speaker Johnson recognized that Democratic votes are necessary to pass anything of significance in Congress. The spending bill would keep government funding at current levels for roughly two more months while a long-term spending package is negotiated. Delegates from about 150 countries are meeting in Kenya this week. They're working on a UN treaty to deal with the problem of plastic waste. NPR's Julia Simon says not all delegates agree on the solutions. At this point, no environment on the entire planet is untouched by plastic waste. It's in the deepest oceans, the atmosphere. This week in Nairobi, countries are trying to hash out the details of a global plastic treaty. Environmental groups and plastic and fossil fuel-related industries are there too, as most plastic is made from oil and gas. But there are big disagreements over how to deal with plastic waste. Some are pushing recycling, but it's never really worked. Less than 10% of plastic is recycled globally. On the other side are countries, environmental groups, and scientists looking to cap the amount of new plastic companies produce. Fossil fuel and plastic-producing countries are pushing back against the idea. The UN hopes to have a plastic treaty finalized next year. Julia Simon, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A strike by more than 12,000 janitors in Massachusetts and Rhode Island appears to have been averted. The Service Employees International Local 32 says it reached a tentative agreement with the region's largest cleaning contractors. The union says the pact includes a 20 percent wage increase over four years. In addition, about 500 part-time jobs in Boston and Cambridge will be converted into full-time positions over the life of the contract. A vote on the tentative deal is set to begin Saturday. Housing advocates in Brookline are applauding the passage last night of a rezoning plan that will add hundreds of units to the town's commercial districts. The zoning changes will let Brookline comply with a new state law that requires multifamily zoning near public transit. Critics of the measure have said it will not help the Harvard Street Business District, but organizer Katha Seidman with the group Yes in Brookline says the town has to adapt to the current housing market. A town's character is made up of both its buildings and its streetscapes, but it's also made up of its people. And Brookline has to allow itself to grow and change so that it can accommodate 
the new people. The plan could lead to the development of up to 800 units along Harvard Street in Brookline. A judge has sentenced the former head of the Boston Center for Adult Education to prison for embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars from the organization. Susan Brown was sentenced to two to three years in state prison with five years probation after being convicted of larceny and forgery. The financial theft led the nonprofit to lose its tax-exempt status. Its former comptroller pleaded guilty to embezzling more than a million dollars from the organization earlier this year. The forecast is just ahead. WBUR supporters include Joy Street and Brick Bottom Artists Association. See the work of over 80 artists at Joy Street and Brick Bottom Open Studios this weekend. Brickbottom.org slash events. And Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at clarkliving.com. The forecast tonight, skies slowly clear, lows about 40 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny, dry, and milder, close to 60. Could reach the mid-60s on Friday. In Boston now, 44 degrees at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including homeless shelters, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Zach Conda, the creative force behind the band Beirut, toured hard in 2019 until his body said stop in the one way he couldn't ignore. Because it tried getting me sick. It tried getting me exhausted. And I think once it found the voice and it kind of pulled the plug on that, it realized that it could shut everything down. A persistent case of laryngitis forced him to cancel a bunch of shows and take a break. So Zach Condon told me he went looking for a place to regroup. He wanted somewhere icy and dark. Because for some reason that that speaks to me and that kind of gives me a sense of protection and shelter. And and so I kind of went looking for the most extreme version of that in northern Norway. Condon ended up in a cabin on an island called Hadsel, where he found a pump organ. So the pump organ is the more piano-sized for your own home. You, you actually... It's funny, when you're playing it, it's like riding a bicycle because you're pumping air into the bellows with your feet. Usually when people say it's like riding a bicycle, they mean you never forget how to do it. You mean you're actually pedaling your feet like a bicycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're literally pedaling your feet like a bicycle. Yeah, and it also it gives you some uh, kind of room for expression and other such things that you wouldn't have on a church organ, for example. There's almost like an accordionish sound to it. Yeah, that's the closest other instrument to it. It's the same kind of reeds. It's just a different system of kind of bellows and air, I guess. And so how much of you is thinking, oh, I've got the place to create my next album and make new music, as opposed to I just need to lick my wounds and recover and be away from people for a little while? Well, actually, originally it was more the latter. I mean, that was my entire purpose. But yeah, once I saw the pictures of the pump organ and I found out that it was in tune and it worked, I kind of went into autopilot. 
Like I wasn't really thinking anymore. I was just reacting and I was packing five suitcases full of equipment and making these plans as if it was a studio visit. We hear the pump organ throughout the album, but there's one instrumental track that I think is just that instrument on its own called Melbu. Yeah, it's it was a very meditative track and it was a very meditative night. I actually was writing that at Odvar's house. Odvar is the guy who uh, let me play the church organ and collects and repairs pump organs from around northern Norway, actually. You say it was a special night, but it was all night. You were there in the Arctic winter. Polar night, yeah. I mean, it was one month-long night, right? Or multi-month. Yeah, I was there for two months. The first month was mostly darkness, and I, I think my parents thought I might go there and lose my mind. Did you? Yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. Go on. I, I, I gravitate towards the night. I always have. Actually, since I was about 11 years old, I've suffered from really bad insomnia. It was like a switch went off in my head and I could no longer sleep uh, during the, the night. I could only sleep during the day for some reason. It's like as soon as the sun would rise, I would rest. And I started to get this kind of backwards feeling of like, the night is when it's peace and solitude and focus and the daytime is when all the noise and activity and stress is and so when i was looking for a place to escape that was very purposeful on my part to find somewhere that was literally nighttime the whole time so that i could just focus this is a real part of you now it's not just a place you did a thing once well i i actually bought a cabin up there because i loved it so Wait, much really yeah yeah I, I really, I really appreciated it there. You know, I didn't expect to be making so many friends up there. That was not, I really thought I would be super isolated, but I ended up getting really involved with the local kind of village that I was part of there. You described the persistent laryngitis that in part led you to this remote island. And there are places on the album where it sounds to me like having lost and regained your voice you're now relishing what it can do in a different way, like taking more pleasure mm. in some of the melodies and harmonies it can make. Do you think of your voice differently now? You know, on this record, I really allowed myself a lot of vocal freedom because I was trying to enjoy it and, and really savor the moment, you know, because who knows, I still have kind of indigestion issues and they can lead to, you know, voice degradation over time, for example. So I'm really trying to kind of take out the limitations. And so with the voice, I was very improvisatory, very just allowing whatever happened to happen. Almost every take on the record is first or second or third try. Like really? Somewhere in the very first few. Yeah, yeah. Because you get this kind of magical, deeper emotion out of it. And as cliche as that sounds, it's like as soon as you start retreading the same territory and trying to get it quote-unquote correct, you, you end up losing the magic, you know? So I made sure not to allow myself to critique myself out of first takes on this record. So. Mm. One place I hear what you're describing is the track Arctic Forest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. is that Is that an apt um, example? <laughs> it's very apt because I hadn't even finished writing the story I was going to put into it before I started singing. And then what happened is when I went and I went back to rewrite and correct the kind of improvisation I had done, I realized I could never do it as well again. Hmm. And so there is actual gibberish in there and I had to just allow myself to be okay with it.
so you're planning your first live concerts in years for early 2024. How are you feeling about it? If I'm being honest, I'm terrified. Hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm already losing a little sleep over it. But I wanted to celebrate the record in a lot of ways. It's not so much that I ever hated performance. Uh, I'm not a performer, naturally. It's, it's, I'm much more of the, the tinkerer. Like, I'm in the bedroom kind of tinkering on songs all night. And that's my natural place. But there's something beautiful about live music, especially when you have a lot of acoustic instruments on stage. And I just really wanted to be able to do that at least once with this music. So... I told myself, I, I won't go on tour, but I'm, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try to get on stage once again and kind of fight through the stress and the struggle and, and see how this turns out. And maybe it's something I can do off and on from now on. Do you feel like you now have a different relationship with your body than you did before the Great Rebellion of 2019? <laughs> you know, you hear this a lot from people who have kind of suffered traumas and such things. It's, it's not so much that you get past it or through it or anything so much as you get better at carrying it with you mm. and I'm, I'm reaching that point where these issues that I have I'm starting to be able to sit with them rather than run from them all the time and I'm, I'm hoping that's the solution because that might be the best I get you know and now that you've got a cabin in remote Norway, you could always retreat to Hadsel again if you need to. That's my immediate plan after the February shows. Really? So I can catch the, the really snowy month, which is March, which is my favorite. Zach Condon performs as Beirut, and his new album is Hadsel. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Two major reports out this week showed just how starkly climate change is impacting people's health and personal lives. Alejandra Barunda from NPR's Climate Desk joins us now to talk through the highlights. Hey, Alejandra. Hey. So, what are these two reports? Like, what are the major themes that they take a look at? So the National Climate Assessment for the U.S. came out earlier this week, and so did the Lancet Countdown, which is this global report that comes out every year. They both really hammered home that climate change is hurting people physically and mentally. Climate change is harming human health and that it's unequivocal. This is Mary Hayden. She was the lead author on the health chapter in the National Climate Assessment. She says the climate risks are not the same for everyone. It harms everybody but certain communities are disproportionately affected. She's talking about poor people. That includes people in the global South. We're talking about under-resourced communities in the U.S., including children. It's, yeah. it's much worse for them already. Absolutely. And just remind us, Alejandra, like what are some of the specific ways that climate change affects people's health? The most obvious is, is heat. Mm -hmm. This summer, for example, it was off the charts hot. Climate change, we know, is making heat waves hotter and last longer. And doctors, they know that during heat waves, the number of heart attacks and strokes and all kinds of other health problems go way up. Yeah. But heat is definitely not the only health risk from climate change. Like wildfire smoke, for example, that's another one. 
or hurricanes even, they cause flooding and then mold can grow in people's houses. And diseases like Lyme, they're spreading because the insects that carry them are thriving farther north. Mm. And, and that's just physical health. There are impacts on mental health too. PTSD after climate disasters and deep anxiety about the future. These are things that people are really struggling with right now. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. The U.S. alone spends like $1 billion a year on climate-related health costs. Wow. So then what do scientists and health experts and academics say about the future? Like, are climate-related health risks only going to get worse? Yeah, definitely. In the U.S., for example, on average, there were two heat waves a year in the 1960s. Today, it's more than six. That's a huge added risk. Renee Salas is one of the authors of The Lancet Report. She says there's been an 88% increase in deaths related to heat in older adults just in the U.S. Salas, in her work as a doctor at Mass General Hospital in Boston, has seen these impacts firsthand. I have seen many different heat-related illnesses in the emergency department, but one that really uh, has resonated with me is a construction worker who came in with deadly heat stroke while working two different construction jobs to support his young family. So climate change is hurting people who work outside. It also hurts people who live in historically redlined neighborhoods where there's less tree shade. So it can be 15 degrees hotter than just a few blocks away. People living there... They're already living in the climate change future. Totally. So then, I mean, what can we do to better protect ourselves and and the people we care about? Yeah, it's really a two-pronged approach. The Lancet authors say step one is to get at the root cause of climate change, which is reducing fossil fuel use immediately. And step two, countries need to deal with the problems climate change has already created. That's actions like passing protections for people who work outdoors in extreme heat or making hospitals more resilient to floods or other climate disasters. That is NPR's Alejandra Barunda. She covers climate and health for NPR. Thank you so much, Alejandra. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll look at why thousands of big three auto workers are voting against the record union contracts reached during a six-week strike. That story and much more still ahead. WBUR supporters include Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com and Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. If you're taking a road trip this fall, use the drive to catch up on your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live. Or tap on the WBUR app to rewind shows and play them back. Download the app for free before you hit the road. Some clouds around tonight falling to 40 degrees and then sunny, dry, milder tomorrow, up around 60. It's 549. WBUR supporters include the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. 
I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider. John Davis and his wife Margot are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can too at WBUR.org legacy. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The Israeli military said its troops went into the main hospital complex in Gaza City overnight, where conditions for patients and medical staff had been growing increasingly desperate as fighting has gone on around the hospital. Israel says Hamas militants operate in al-Shifa hospital and other hospitals or in tunnels underneath. All this comes as Israel continues to pursue Hamas fighters after the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th, with Gaza health officials saying the Israeli offensive has killed more than 11,000 people there. NPR's Peter Kenyon is following these developments from Jerusalem and joins us now. Hi, Peter. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what is the latest on al-Shifa hospital at this point? And what happened there exactly today? The Israeli military mounted an operation inside the hospital, which is a complex of buildings, saying its troops took every measure to ensure that patients, staff, and civilians weren't harmed. Al-Shifa is a pretty modern hospital where doctors have carried out complex operations. Uh, But doctors and others have described dire conditions for the hundreds of people still there. They say low power supplies have left them unable to run incubators for infants, and at least two have died. They say they've had to bury people in a mass grave. And for the living, food and water are running low. Rights groups say hospitals are protected under international law, even if militants are around. But Israel says Hamas using al-Shifa as a base of operations voids that protected status. The military says they discovered weapons in what they call terrorist infrastructure at al-Shifa. And what exactly is Israel saying right now about why they felt they had to enter al-Shifa? Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was full of praise for this operation, saying in a statement, quote, there is no place in Gaza we cannot reach, there are no hideouts, there is no shelter or refuge for the Hamas murderers. A military spokesperson, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, said Hamas was guilty of using a facility designed to save lives to mount terrorist attacks. Uh, Here's some of what he said. Israel is at war with Hamas, not with the civilians in Gaza. The IDF has publicly warned time and again that Hamas's continued military use of Shifa hospital jeopardizes its protected status under the international law. Now, the military also says its troops clashed with and killed Hamas militants outside the hospital before gaining access. And is there any new information now on the more than 200 hostages being held by Hamas? Like, how are efforts going to secure their release? Uh, Well, President Biden has said talks are ongoing. The Reuters news agency is reporting mediators from Qatar are trying to negotiate a deal with Hamas and Israel that would see Hamas release some 50 hostages in exchange for a three-day ceasefire. Uh, But some Israeli media report the talks are stalled. And what do we know about where the Israeli military operation in Gaza stands at this point? Like, what might happen next? Well, basically, the military is claiming success in northern Gaza. It moved many civilians out and killed a number of Hamas fighters. I remember Israel's goals are to remove Hamas as a security threat. The analysts I've spoken with suggest it may be much harder for Israel to operate in the southern Gaza Strip as it did in the north. And Hamas fighters are still in firefights with Israeli troops, still firing rockets into Israel. So clearly the group is still operating. That is NPR's Peter Kenyon in Jerusalem. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Elsa. It's Art Month in Lagos. 
Artists, galleries, and visitors from around the world have descended on Nigeria's buzzing commercial capital. In recent years, Lagos has emerged as a rising center of art from the continent, and the prominence of African artists in the global art industry has been a major success story, as NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports. Thousands of people pass through a wall of music and pour into the cool shade of ArtX, the eighth edition of the largest art fair in West Africa. It's the biggest fixture in Lagos's Art Month, an unofficial calendar of exhibitions, events, parties and after parties dotted around affluent parts of the city, drawing in people from around the region and the world. I wanted to create a moment for Lagos on the global art calendar, a moment that brought the rest of Africa together here and enabled us on home soil to encounter those around the world. Tokini Peterside Shrubig founded Artex in 2016, overcoming several challenges during a recession to create the first of its kind in Nigeria. Honestly, it took off like a rocket. And over the first few years, we're very pivotal in the emergence of the art season that has now sprung up around the fair. The fair is a magnet, attracting celebrities, Lagos's effortlessly ostentatious middle class, and an emergent generation of artists, curators, and galleries. It's very much become a place where the community gathers, where important questions are asked, which is especially important in a moment like this where Nigerian and African countries are facing quite extreme challenges. ArtX is a snapshot of how Nigeria's art industry, largely led by women, has flourished in adverse conditions. Visitors make their way through a sprawl of paintings, prints, moving image installations and sculptures. This year the theme is the dialogue, with panels and talks organised partly in response to challenging economic times for the industry. I'm currently showing one of the artists that we represent. Her name is Adolfina Imuede. Wunika Mukan founded her self-named gallery three years ago and has quickly gained prominence in Lagos. The last decade has seen a boom period of relatively rapid success for several artists and galleries. A key driver has been a growing demand from Western galleries for black portraiture from the continent. Nigerian artists have always been in the room, from Ben Nwongwu to Nengi Omoku and then Bruce Onograpia. In the past three or four years, there was this like insatiable appetite for West African black portrait. A lot of young artists started to emerge. Mukan said a reckoning within the art world after the killing of George Floyd drove efforts to exhibit a greater diversity of artists and a greater representation of black figures. But foreign demand for the genre has slowed this year. So there was a bit of a wild, wild west for a few years and I think things are calming down. But Wunika says the more challenging climate for artists and galleries is also an opportunity. I think the black portraiture phase brought in a lot of attention, which is good. They're still here. So it's now time for us to also show more and, yeah, be more flexible. And I want to top it up. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. In one corner of the fair, visitors take in the soundscape of a church service in a varied exhibition by Dafe Oboro, full of collage, portraiture, and visual and audio installations. Shiju Alera Mike is a curator visiting ArtX and she says this year's fair has been one of the best she's experienced. I think the work that the artists have um, showcased this year is phenomenal. The fair has definitely scaled down. It's smaller, it's more intimate and you're able to actually focus on the themes that you want to, to express. 
Art X founder Tokini Peterside Tribune is bullish about the future of Africa's art scene. Local demand in Nigeria has stuttered and international buyers have called, but there remains enduring and growing interest around the world and much to build on. For us, Africa is not a trend. Africa is an important and pivotal voice in the mainstream. And so for us, this is about a sustainable future, longevity. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the FDA. Its Remove the Risk campaign encourages people to dispose of the unused, unwanted, and expired opioid medications in their homes. Learn more at fda.gov slash remove the risk. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. This series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. President Biden's expected to hold a news conference at 7.15 tonight, and we will bring it to you live here at 90.9. Biden is likely to get questioned about his face-to-face meeting today with the president of China and questioned about the intense conflict between Israel and Hamas. Listen again at 7.15 on the WBUR app. 44 degrees in Boston. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The United Auto Workers Union is trumpeting the agreements it negotiated with the big three automakers. We never let up. The result is one of the most stunning contract victories since the sit-down strikes in the 1930s. But ratifying the agreements has been a bumpy road. It's Wednesday, November 15th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, there were about 800 earthquakes last night in Iceland, and that's leading researchers to warn that a volcanic eruption may be near. At an Illinois prison that is rife with abuse, officials are trying to change the culture and they're getting threatened with violence for doing so. Also, the new climate change song, Won't Give Up, featuring musicians including cellist Yo-Yo Ma. It's 6.01 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.N. Security Council has passed a resolution calling for urgent and extended humanitarian pauses in Gaza. The U.S. vetoed a previous draft resolution but abstained to allow this one through, as did Russia. 
Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. This is the first time the Security Council has been able to agree on anything during the month-long conflict, and U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says she's, quote, horrified that some council members would not condemn Hamas for the October 7th attack. Let's be crystal clear. Hamas set this conflict in motion. She abstained from the vote because it didn't condemn Hamas, but it does call on Hamas and other groups to immediately release all hostages. And it calls on all sides to protect civilians, children in particular, and calls for humanitarian pauses to facilitate aid. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping met today in Northern California, where both will be attending the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco. She's saying, quote, that planet Earth is big enough for both global superpowers to succeed. Biden said the purpose of the meeting is to understand each other. China and the U.S., the two biggest economies in the world, are also the biggest polluters, where they've agreed to tackle global warming by ramping up use of wind, solar, and other renewables. In San Francisco today, hundreds of climate activists attempted to prevent attendees from attending the APEC summit. The member station KQED, Ezra David Romaro reports. ExxonMobil's CEO Darren Woods was among the conference speakers Wednesday. By hosting the oil company executive, activists say the conference is giving the oil industry an international platform. That's an issue for protester Renata Pumaral because she says the oil industry is responsible for climate warming. We are experiencing climate chaos like multiple times a year. I worry a lot about like the future that my kid and every kid will have. Wood said the issue is not oil and gas, but emissions, and that his company is investing in technology to reduce its carbon pollution. But climate activists note that the company just acquired one of the country's biggest oil fields in a $60 billion deal. For NPR News, I'm Ezra David Romero in San Francisco. Absent agreement a government shutdown could come in days. NPR's Domenico Montanero reports a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds most Americans want compromise. Two-thirds say it's more important for newly minted House Speaker Mike Johnson to compromise rather than stand on principle in budget negotiations. Republicans, though, are split on that, complicating Johnson's ability to pass something a Democratic-controlled Senate can agree to. The book is still out on Johnson, by the way. Almost half in the poll say they don't have an opinion of him. How he handles this will be his first big test and could help define how he's viewed. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. New Hampshire has set the date for its first in the nation presidential primary. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, state officials are ignoring the wishes of the Democratic Party and President Joe Biden to have South Carolina vote ahead of New Hampshire. New Hampshire voters will cast ballots on January 23rd, upholding the state's 100-year tradition of holding the nation's first presidential primary. That's a week after the Iowa caucuses and in a rebuke to the Democratic National Committee and President Biden a week before the primary in South Carolina. Governor Chris Sununu says the announcement is consistent with state law, which requires New Hampshire to be first. We haven't changed a thing in New Hampshire. We're going first because our law says so, because we've earned it. Um, We are the ones that are trying to be uh, amazing. Amazingly consistent. 45 names will be on the Republican and Democratic ballots, but not Joe Biden's because of the party's plan to put South Carolina first. State Democrats are organizing a write-in campaign for the president. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The Boston City Council today unanimously passed an ordinance that will require the Boston Police Department to monitor gun trafficking. WBUR's Arena Machabriani has more. The plan calls on police to compile an annual report on the flow of illegal firearms into Boston. 
Police also must track how traffickers transport guns and disclose offenders' ages when available. City Councilor Brian Worrell says the measure will bring evidence-based changes to gun control policies in Boston. These reports will provide the data we need to best craft policies that will make a real impact. We will find out exactly how these guns are getting into our neighborhoods and how these cycles of violence begin. The ordinance notes that the majority of firearms recovered at Boston crime scenes come from 18 other states. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Elina Majawadiani. Governor Moore Healy plans to expand financial aid for Massachusetts students who attend public colleges and universities in the state. Our administration said today it plans to spend more than $60 million to help cover student costs. Officials say the plan will eliminate tuition and fees for about 25,000 students. The money will come from the state's new surtax on income above $1 million. And the federal government is penalizing the state's agency for the blind more than $1 million. The Boston Globe reports that the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind mismanaged a nearly $8 million annual grant. That grant is designed to help blind residents find jobs. But the commission spent uh, spent $1.4 million less than it was supposed to on its own vocational programs. The federal government took back that amount this fiscal year because of the issue. It is 44 degrees now in the Boston area. First part of tonight should be overcast, then sunny tomorrow all the way up to 60. Partly sunny Friday, windy but warmer. Temperatures in the mid-60s. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. All month, we've been hearing about the record contracts the United Auto Workers won after a six-week strike. But for thousands of workers, the 25% raises and other gains are proving not good enough. UAW members are now voting for or against the tentative deal. And for more on all of that, we turn now to NPR's Andrea Shu. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so tell us more about what's going on. Some workers are voting the contract down? Well, the numbers are constantly changing as workers go to their union halls to vote. It's happening plant by plant. But we do now do, do now have tallies for most of the GM and Ford facilities. And at Ford, about two-thirds of voters have actually voted yes. And at GM, the yes votes are also ahead, but it's a lot closer. Okay. So this morning, we got results from three of GM's big truck and SUV plants in Missouri, Indiana, and Texas. Each of them has thousands of workers. And at two of them in Missouri and Indiana, a majority voted no on the deal. Hmm. But in Texas, 60% voted yes. So a lot of mixed opinions out there. Mixed opinions. I I guess I'm kind of surprised because, I mean, I feel like we've heard everyone, even President Biden, call these contracts historic, right? Yeah, President Biden spoke to UAW workers last week, and it was kind of a party atmosphere. Um, Here's how he congratulated Union President Sean Fain. Sean, you've done one hell of a job, pal. And Biden said these contracts set a new standard. And when you look at what Sean Fain achieved, it is impressive. The raises, 25 percent for most workers, but a whole lot more for lower wage earners are more than auto workers have seen in the past 22 years combined. Hmm. And the union also got cost of living allowances restored, so wages will rise along with inflation. They got all three companies to increase 
their 401k retirement contributions to 10%. And Elsa, these are all gains that I think most workers in America would be overjoyed about. Absolutely. So why is there so much dissatisfaction, at least at General Motors? Well, a lot of workers, including those who voted yes, will point out that these wins still don't make up for what auto workers lost in 2007 when the country was on the verge of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, starting wages were cut in half, new hires stopped getting pensions and retiree health care. And Sean Fain went into these talks saying, we're fighting to get these things back. And also, we want a 40% raise and a 32-hour work week. And, you know, while some workers have told me they understood from the beginning that this was a bargaining tactic. You know, you shoot for the moon because you're going to end up with less. Right. Others thought this was possible. Some of this was possible. And moreover, they feel they deserve these benefits, especially healthcare and retirement, given how hard they work and how profitable the big three have been. So are workers feeling like Sean Fain let them down? Well, to some extent, but let's be clear, he still has lots of fans, but some people have told me they don't trust Fain. Uh, I think a lot of that stems from the troubled history of the union. You know, it was only a couple years ago that more than a dozen UAW officials were convicted on corruption charges. Two past UAW presidents spent time in prison. And even though Sean Fain came in as a reformer, you know, and a rabble rouser, someone who actually led a campaign to reject that 2007 contract that was so bad for workers, he's now already seen by some as the establishment, despite everything he's done to try to convince the rank and file that he's with them. And this is the best contract he thinks he can get them. Okay. Well, as we said, the votes are ongoing. When do you think we can expect final results? Well, possibly by the end of this week. There's still lots of voting going on at Stellantis. Yes, votes are ahead there as well. And then we'll see if any of the contracts are rejected by the members. Their negotiators go back to the bargaining table, but there's no guarantee what they would emerge with. That is NPR's Andrea Shu. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thanks, Elsa. In Iceland, experts say a volcanic eruption could come any day now. Hundreds of earthquakes have pushed magma upward. The country has declared a state of emergency and evacuated thousands of people from the peninsula where the earth is shaking. Edward Marshall is a geochemist at the University of Iceland. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Harry. I'm glad to be here. At this point, is a volcanic eruption a sure thing or how likely is it? It's certainly not a sure thing, although initially... The signs were telling us that the eruption was advancing quite rapidly. Since then, signs that eruption is going to occur have been declining over time. And yet, the country has declared a state of emergency. Thousands of people have been evacuated. The risk still seems real. It's very real, and it's still high. But it's also true that the most likely times for an eruption to occur have already passed. There were times when some were claiming that an eruption would happen in hours. And now claims are more on the order of days to weeks. Um, Now, the thing is, is that sometimes these signals that precede an eruption can go away for a little bit shortly before an eruption. So it's not necessarily the case that silence is good. But it's also true that as time goes on and no eruption has happened, it becomes less likely that an eruption will occur in the future. Okay, so on the one hand, if everybody's lucky, there will be no eruption. But there's also a possibility... Of a massive eruption, I mean, in 2010, a volcano in Iceland erupted, and not only did it have local effects, it disrupted global air travel. So how do you prepare for that wide a range of scenarios? So this is where our scientific study of the region comes into play. 
we have done a massive amount of study of the area of the types of eruptions that occur. And what we can say is we can almost rule out an Ayafiatla yokel style of very large eruption. Because Ayafiatla yokel which is this large eruption that occurred in 2010, uh, erupted a very different type of lava than what we expect beneath the Reykjanes Peninsula. So in real world terms, if this volcano does erupt, what's it going to look like? What it will look like is we'll have a fissure open up. The fissure will be uh, hundreds of meters to kilometers long. The fissure will, will produce lava. And over the first hours to days, the fissure will collapse into lava coming out of a single vent. And depending upon the amount of lava coming out initially in the beginning of the eruption, the eruption could last weeks or months, which is the amount of time that eruptions have lasted previously on the Reykjanes Peninsula. And currently, we don't have any reason to believe that this eruption should be much different. I've got to ask for you, as somebody who spent your life researching this, is there a tension between the excitement of watching something like this unfold in real time and the anxiety about the destruction that it could cause if it happens? This is a great question. So in 2021, we had the eruption of Fragadalsfjall, which erupted in a part of the Reykjanes Peninsula that was completely uninhabited. So we were able to kind of have our cake and eat it too as mm. geologists because we had this fantastic eruption and nobody was getting hurt. But the thing is, is that an eruption near Grindavik could truly be a disaster. It could destroy the power plant that supports heat and electricity for the nearby residents. And it could, of course, destroy the town of Grindavik. Uh, Icelanders are no newcomers to disaster. And in the past, they have done extremely heroic actions to stop lava from destroying their cities and harbors. But we don't know what will happen in this coming eruption if it happens. So... You know, although I'm very excited about eruptions, I'm definitely hoping that there isn't going to be one. Edward Marshall is a geochemist with the University of Iceland. Thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, thank you, Ari. NPR Tiny Desk Contest winner Quinn Christofferson, drag artist Patty Gonia, and superstar cellist Yo-Yo Ma have joined forces to create a new song for the climate change movement. NPR's Chloe Veltman says the trio aims to counteract feelings of despair when it comes to reducing global warming. The song Won't Give Up was originally conceived as a requiem, an act of remembrance for a melting glacier in Alaska. We were standing, all three of us, on Exit Glacier in a spot where even five, ten years ago, the glacier was 100 feet tall, and now it's nothing. Now it's the rocks underneath. That's drag artist Patagonia. She and her collaborators, Quinn Christofferson and Yo-Yo Ma, travelled to the site in Kenai Fjords National Park to shoot the accompanying music video. In the video, the trio performs the song against a rugged backdrop of craggy rocks, dark waters and scattered shards of ice. Yo-Yo Ma's haunting cello solo personifies the weeping glacier.
Melting glaciers, rising sea levels and extreme weather are just some of the impacts of human-caused climate change. Yet, despite these realities, the musicians decided to give their song a hopeful message. Quinn Christofferson, an indigenous Alaskan, says that's what the climate change movement needs right now. We're not going to give up on nature, we're not going to give up on each other. Around 100 people at a recent music workshop held in Fairbanks joined the artists for a sing-along. Princess Dajre Johnson is a board member of Native Movement, an indigenous-led advocacy group in Alaska. She helped organize the workshop. We have to be able to express these big emotions so we can continue to take action and not fall into this pit of despair. The musicians say they hope Won't Give Up will become an anthem for the climate change movement. They'd like to see it have as big an impact as We Shall Overcome, the song that helped to define the civil rights movement. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday evening. Coming up in business news starting at 6.30, many of the ideas of economist Milton Friedman are considered conventional economic wisdom today, but back in his day... He was really profoundly out of step politically, intellectually, methodologically with all his peers. The life and legacy of Milton Friedman coming up on WBUR. Another update for stocks. The Dow rose nearly a half percent. S&P grew by less than two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained less than one-tenth of a percent. Four Massachusetts zip codes are among the top 100 when it comes to the most expensive places to buy a home in the U.S. The real estate website Realty Hop finds that Boston's Back Bay is the 17th most expensive zip code. Median home prices there are $3.7 million. Boston's Beacon Hill, Wellesley, and Newton also cracked the top 100, with median home prices topping $2 million. The most expensive home prices in the country are in Atherton, California, right near San Francisco, with a median price tag of nearly $8 million. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com And Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions. FreshCityKitchen.com I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. It's a clash of the Titans tonight in Philadelphia where the Celts take on the 76ers. Both teams are 8-2, and two, tied for the best record in the Eastern Conference. Celts are looking to avenge a loss to the Sixers last Wednesday in Philadelphia. This is WBUR. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance, brokerage, and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com, and the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Special Management Unit at the U.S. Penitentiary at Thompson, Illinois, was one of the most violent prisons in the country. NPR and the Marshall Project first exposed the abuse of prisoners there last year. And in February, officials at the U.S. Bureau of Prisons concluded that the unit couldn't be fixed and shut it down. Now, prison officials are telling our reporters that things were as bad as we reported and worse. When they tried to make change, they even faced a death plot from some of their own staff. Here's NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro. Egregious inmate abuse, the worst he'd ever seen in his 31 years in corrections. That's how Warden Thomas Bergami described what he found at Thompson. He was sent there in March of 2022 to fix things. But he says often corrections officers resisted his directives to quit abusing prisoners. He ordered them to stop putting prisoners in handcuffs and restraints for hours and days, so tight and for so long that men were left with permanent scars, what they called their Thompson tattoos. Bergami told us of white guards using racial slurs and writing up false charges against black prisoners, that when he tried to hold staff accountable, he says the staff union went to war, falsifying and hyping problems at the prison and complaining to the local media. Your top story at 10, calls for help are growing inside USP Thompson. Thomas Bergami has only been the warden at USP Thompson for about four months. But the staff union is calling for his immediate removal. Bergami says his superiors at the Federal Bureau of Prisons were afraid of bad publicity and that they failed to back him up. Bergami retired recently. He spoke freely, but he didn't want his voice on tape. NPR and the Marshall Project found backing for his version of events in 200 pages of official documents, in interviews with several current and former Thompson staff, even union members, and senior officials like Associate Warden Denny Whitmore. It says on top, this is an emergency issue. Please help. And it's dated December 21st and 22nd. Given to Whitmore reads a handwritten letter. It's an urgent warning to the warden, signed last December by 14 prisoners. They reported that corrections officers were recruiting prisoners, promising favors to ones who would physically attack the warden. Each individual inmate who have signed this document all testify that they have had encounters with many officers who have offered extra materials, food, trays, and privileges to verbally and physically assault Warden Bergami. The Bureau of Prisons investigated, but the investigator's report was short and dismissive. The investigator says he interviewed prisoners who signed the letter, that their stories were consistent, but because they wouldn't or couldn't tell the investigator the time and day the guards talked to them, the investigator says he can't check out their story. As a result, quote, this investigator could not confirm nor refute the allegations of the inmates. Damon Jackson has no doubt that the threat was real. Man, no guards, man, they, they vicious. Jackson was one of the prisoners who, at personal risk, signed the warning letter. The officers, they openly talk trash about the war, and they want them out the way. They openly talk about it like it ain't no secret. 
they wanted to continue doing what they were doing in the war and weren't going for it. So they was trying to get them out of the way so they could continue beating inmates and running the prison how they wanted to run it. And I felt terrible for Warden Bergami. Denny Whitmore, the associate warden. His head's probably spinning like, wait a minute, Mike, there's a threat against my life and there's, there's staff conspiring to, to have inmates uh, seriously assault me or try to kill me? And then to find out the staff are put back on their posts within like a three to five day period, it, you know, it just, uh, it screams of unsafe. Whitmore and Bergami were two experienced wardens sent to Thompson by the Bureau of Prisons to correct things. Right away, they ran into resistance. Black shirt mafia. Black shirt mafia. That's what he says a large group of corrections officers and other staffers called themselves the black shirt mafia. Instead of wearing their uniforms, they came to work in black t-shirts, and they didn't wear their name tags. It was a sign to the prisoners and to the wardens that the guards could do what they wanted. Some wore t-shirts with white skulls, the logo of the Punisher, the Marvel Comics vigilante. Barbell retired the logo after it was appropriated by far-right groups and worn by some of the January 6th rioters. Bergami and Whitmore quickly issued a directive staff needed to wear their official prison uniforms. The wardens say the union complained to their boss at the Bureau of Prisons, the regional director, who then reversed the order and said it was okay for staff to wear black t-shirts and hoodies, but only with the union's logo. It totally diminished our authority. It totally undermined whatever we were trying to do there. It was one of many times they say officials at the agency sided with the union and the guards. There was one that pulled an inmate out of a cell and then swung him around and smashed the inmate's face off the wall. The BOP told us it responds to abuse allegations with, quote, rigorous investigations and decisive action. But the wardens say BOP officials ordered guards who faced repeated accusations to be reinstated. Union leaders deny the accusations of the wardens. They say it was the wardens who created problems and failed to protect the safety of prison staff. Brian Mueller is an officer for the National Council of Prison Locals. Union and management, it's a partnership. It's a give and take. This is a situation at Thompson where obviously it's well documented that management and, and labor did not get along. This summer, Bergami retired from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Whitmore, too. Both believe their path to promotion was now blocked. These were wardens who, just last year, were considered so skilled that they were sent to correct a bad prison. After the Bureau of Prisons shut down the special management unit in February and moved the inmates to other prisons, it expanded a low-security prison at Thompson. What happened was they closed it and they reopened the same building, and they had the same offices there. Topeka Sam is a prison advocate whose fiancé is a prisoner at that low-security facility. We talked to multiple family members of men who are there now. They say the brutal treatment of prisoners continues. So they may have moved the other population. They have a new population there, but it's the same officers there. So you didn't change anything. In September, the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Colette Peters, was called to Capitol Hill for an oversight hearing. The first thing she got asked... So let me talk about Thompson for a minute. ...was about her decision to shut down the unit at Thompson. Thank you, Senator. I, I don't know how an institution gets to that low, low point. Um, as you said, the warden reported he hadn't seen anything like that in his career. I, too, hadn't seen anything like that in my 30-plus year career in corrections and law enforcement. Far from Capitol Hill, 
former warden Thomas Bergami watched. He told us he felt validated by what she said. Director Peters took over last year as a reformer. Bergami felt allied with her, but that people under her resisted change. At that hearing, Peters cautioned it would take time to turn the culture at the Illinois prison. There's been retraining of staff, and the director said guards who were found responsible for abusing prisoners would be held accountable. But so far, no staffer has been fired for the damaging abuse at Thompson. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th. LyricStage.com and Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com.